People, get ready to explore in a way you never have before with the Defender 110. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design, a reimagined exterior, a robust interior, a superior off-road capability. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. It has powerful innovations like intuitive driver display. Whether you're headed to uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration, the Defender 110 is up to the challenge. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, look, I'm sure you take a lot of vitamins. Maybe you take a daily multivitamin. Maybe you take ones to boost your immunity or ones to help with alertness. What about your cells? Are you giving your cells the full nutrition they need, especially as we age? I am, thanks to Solgar. Solgar is part of my daily routine, thanks to their cellular nutrition line. Give yourself a daily collection of nutrients designed to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more and use promo code MarkMarin, all one word, to get 20% off. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I am Mark Marin. This is my podcast. What's going on with you? You okay? Did you get that? Uh, did you get that thing done? I hope so. I mean, you know, you talk a lot about it. You know, you've been talking about it for like God. It feels like years. I hope. Uh, I hope you you are actually getting it done. I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be a dick, but uh, you know, at some point you got to quit talking and, and get on it. Just give it a try. So what? You might fail. You might not sell it. It might not go anywhere. But uh, at least you did it, right? How's that thing? Did you? Did, how, how were your tests? Did they come out okay? I'm sorry. I'm just. Uh, I'm spitballing here. How are the people on the farm? How are the crops? Is it too hot? Is all the lettuce dying? Is all the are the carrots okay? Are the beets gonna make it? How about the kale? How sturdy is that kale? Is it gonna make it through this heat? Do you have water? All right. Enough checking in. Hey, did that bread turn out? How old was your uh? Your sourdough culture. I didn't realize that some of those things, like the sourdough uh, starters, some of them go back to the 1800s. Maybe I, I don't. I, mean, I guess if someone's been managing that, you got to have sort of a a kind of a ongoing legacy of bakers taking care of this jar of mold. Uh, George Schlatter is back. George Schlatter. It's important. It's important to get these guys while they're still gettable. And, you know, on the right side of the grass. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he's a legendary television producer and director, best known for creating Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Uh, we talked a lot about that on episode 848. He's back to tell more stories about his life and show business. His new memoir is called Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy. And I'm always happy, though a bit nervous, to talk to these guys. I mean, I think George is in his 90s now, but he's got his... Uh, He's on top of it. He's uh, he's quick. He's clear. He knows his stories. And I, I needed to catch up on. Uh, I need to fill in some gaps about the old days uh, in relation to the comedy store, which used to be a nightclub called Ciro's. And Schlatter was there at the at the at the heyday of Ciro's. And I just needed to, you know, I, I needed to talk about the old days. And like this is not nostalgia for me. This is before my time. 
But like, there's some part of me that really insists in my mind that I am because of my profession, a legacy to the comics that came before me. Uh, before I forget, I'm at Largo in Los Angeles tonight. That's July 27th. I'll be at the Salt Lake City Wise Guys on August 11th and 12th for four shows. I'm at Helium in St. Louis on September 14th through 16th for five shows. Uh, then I'm at the Las Vegas Wise Guys. I believe I'm at the one in the Arts District. We moved it from the new one, the big grand opening. I just want to just want to do my shit. I, I don't want to worry about drawing people from the strip. I just want to work for my fans in the Las Vegas area at the nice small room. So that's on uh, September 22nd and 23rd for four shows. In October, I'm at Helium in Portland, Oregon on October 20th through 22nd. You can go to WTFpod.com for tickets. I believe I have dates coming up in uh, Bloomington. I have to put those up. I always like going up there and being in that weird fucking little town uh, for a couple of days. It looks like I might even be in there during, like every time I'm there, it's during the summer. So it's just kind of local freaks. But it might, I'm, I, I might be there while college is actually happening. Uh, so it might feel like a different town. I don't think I've ever been there when it's been alive with, uh, with the young folks. But, uh, but I, haven't, I don't think that's up on the, on the thing. Yet. I'll deal with it. Um, what else? So, oh, yeah. Legacy. Comics. I've been watching old comics. And I told you about this. I talked to Schwader a little bit about it, about Rickles and Rodney specifically. For some reason, Rickles and Rodney are the guys I've been watching because, you know, I look back at my old uh, appearances on Conan, you know, mostly the panel appearances. And there's something I, I always do on those where I, I'm immediately I'm immediately on the defensive and I'm immediately flailing. And and I started to watch these old TV appearances, especially with guys on panel. You know, Rickles was always doing the panel, which means he's sitting on the couch and uh, not, I'm not comparing myself, but literally he is immediately drowning. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing about Rickles is that there, a lot of his charm, and I talked to Schlatter about this, is that, you know, he is trying very hard. And a lot of the jokes, they don't really land. And he's just, he's just spinning around and seething. Same with Rodney. You know, Rodney was uh, Dangerfield was almost incapable of having a regular conversation. If it strayed from the jokes, you know, there was this panic and both of them bombed a lot uh, in terms of, you know, what lands and what doesn't, but they were so many jokes per, per minute or in a moment that it just kind of flew by. You didn't really notice it, but it was funny to see how many of them didn't land. It was almost in endearing for me, uh, you know, I know what it feels like to have one, uh, you know, a stinker or just one that just kind of goes flat. But the thing I started realizing about Don Rickles is that a lot of the jokes made no sense. Uh, they just didn't make sense, but there was a timing to it that was great. And I think that the fact, I don't know that if, I don't think that he gets appreciated as uh like an absurdist on purpose. But I mean, like I tried to do one last night on stage. It was just these these jokes that don't really add up. Like I was talking to some guy in the front row because he he was, you know, kind of like talking to me. And I did I just did like what I thought would be like 
and a good example of that. Just make it up on the spot. Just like, hey, hey, boy, what, what did I, where, where, where'd you get those shoes? What'd you have uh, eggs for breakfast? It, like, I remember the first time I saw Don Rickles do some live special or something. He said to a guy in the front row, he said, did that suit come with two pairs of pants and a yo-yo? Which that makes a little bit of sense, but it doesn't have to make sense if you time it right. And I've had moments like that where you do a bit and, you know, it just it, it happens in the moment. It's timed so perfectly. And you don't even realize later when you want to repeat it that it, the logic on it wasn't quite right. And you can never get that timing back. And it's just lost to that moment. But it feels like it should have fucking killed. And it did once. But you realize it's only because of the rhythm. It's the rhythm. But look, I'm excited to talk to George. I think you'll enjoy it. So I've been watching some movies. Um, I've been watching these uh, Sidney Lumet movies recently, again, doing my homework, it seems. When was the last time you watched 12 Angry Men? Holy shit. I want, I, there's two things I want to do that, that will mean almost nothing to anybody. And I'm going I'm to work on them, and I'll, and I'll get back to you with them. But uh, I really need to, to work on a George C. Scott impression. Um, you're going to let him see the board. Uh, I want to work on a Lee J. Cobb impression. These are two <laughs> angry, volatile uh, actors. But Lee J. Cobb and A Few Good Men is something to behold. Or not A Few Good Men, 12 Angry Men. And then I watched years later, Lumet did Serpico. Now, again, these are these weird things, uh, these weird, this phenomenon of having seen movies many, many years ago and having something in my head about them that just is not correct. Like, for some reason, in my mind, Serpico was too long and it was a little boring and it got caught up in his personal life too much. And I don't know. I have no idea what that's based on. It's an amazing movie. It's not slow. It doesn't meander. Pacino's amazing. And it's a, it's a menacing, interesting, uh, gritty New York movie. But in my mind, it was like too long and they spent too long on the romance. And I'm like, what movie was I even watching? I don't know. The mind is weird as you get older in terms of what, uh, you know, what it holds on to. I've had a thing that seems to be happening. I don't know if it's because of my age or that I'm coming up on 60, but, uh, you know, a lot of people from my past are just sort of like, hey, what's up? We should talk. My first girlfriend from college, Sarah, uh, reached out and... Um, and I've seen her uh, on and off over the years, but we hadn't really talked. And she's like, you know, can we just, you know, I, I really would like to talk to you. And I'm like, well, uh, this is this uh, is this good or bad? What about, uh, you know, I mean, I was 19. I don't even know how old would I have been. It's like, um, let's see, 22. Yeah, I was like 19, 20, maybe a little older, maybe, tw yeah, 20. But uh, I was, you know, uh, it was a young version of sweaty, manic, aggravated insecure me uh in a relationship that i couldn't handle but uh you know we were we've known each other in different phases of our life but we got on facetime and it was just really kind of amazing and i don't know if, if you've experienced this i mean sometimes you know people in passing and sometimes you know you spend some genuine time with people uh, enough to know their have a sense of them in a in a way that is real you know, like these people exist in your heart forever, uh, some people. And sometimes when you see them, it, that all kind of just reactivates. 
And it's almost like no time has passed. And I, I've talked about this before, but I, I can't really understand it. But like, like I, I mean, it's been Jesus Christ almost 40 years since we were uh, a couple and, you know, again, seen her on and off, but like to re-engage with her now, both at the age we're at, it was, it was like, of course I know you, of course I do. And it felt so familiar and it was nice to talk to her. And, you know, she laughed the same way. And then she told me she was working on a memoir and I'm in it. And she just wanted to make sure that was okay. And I'm like, well, what, what, what is it about? <laughs> you know, she says just that time in our lives where we were young and creative and you were a little, you know, manic and crazy and, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. But, uh, but nonetheless, we've sort of made some agreement to, um, to re-engage the friendship. And it's, it's kind of a, a, a beautiful thing. You know, how many people you have in your life that, you know, you have that with where you, you, you know them like, like family or like they're, you know, you have this, um, kind of, uh, almost symbiotic, uh, relationship that, that can be revived to some degree, uh, even now after so many years, other people, you know, popping up here and there that I had real relationships with. And you realize, oh, Jesus Christ, I haven't seen this person in 30 years. And it's kind of a, a sweet thing uh, to re-engage. And, it, it, you know, I'm not particularly nostalgic. And I don't necessarily look at much of my past as being anything but uh, sort of difficult and anxious and sweaty and aggravated. But the people that were in it for, for long periods of time or chunks of time, uh, they are a landing place where it's sort of like, yeah, that might have been a difficult time, but, uh, you know, we were close and, and you know, and you were part of me and I was part of you. And it's it's sort of a, a beautiful thing to to rekindle that. Anyway, let's get back to the funny. Uh, George Schwader is here. Uh, he's on the show. I'm going to talk to him right now uh, for you. Uh, his memoir, Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy, is now available wherever you get books. And this is me talking to one of the greats, an important man in the history of comedy, George Schwader. You feel good? I'm fine. Just fine. I'm I can't remember the last time. The last time we were in a different place. Different place, and uh, you had you had convinced me we were going to make a, another laugh in, and uh, you, and I never heard from you. Yeah, well, didn't uh, we didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, that's that show mm-hmm. was twenty four hours a day. You know, they I mean, all are. I don't know. You know, I I I be honest with you. Like, if you were working today, the amount of work it takes to put into a TV show, given the media landscape now, would you even do it? I mean, you work the same amount, but hardly anybody sees anything. You really got to break through. Yeah. Well, you can. Yeah, you do. You do. You need to do something. Yeah. I, uh, well, and it's tough to, it's tough today to get anybody's attention. You know, there's so much junk on. Yeah. Do you watch anything? Uh, I watch news mostly. What, what are you just trying to hurt yourself? CNN. No, it's just a uh, <laughs> habit. Yeah, habit, and you got to know what's going on. You know, and sure. It's, it's getting, and this election is just uh, consuming me. Yeah, I mean, we got when we still got a year, and it's hard to say what the hell's going on. Well, you know what's going on. You know, I, what I mean? well, yeah, I know what's going on, but I don't know how it's going to shake out when we come down to the wire. It seems well, like there's a lot of wild cards. Yeah, but you're 
pretty secure in the knowledge that Trump's going to fuck up something. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not uh, optimistic that we're going to avoid fascism in America. I'm well, not. I'm not optimistic. Are we there yet? Uh, I can still watch whatever TV I want, and they haven't put me on a train yet. So I, I, I think we we might be <laughs> not there yet. There's a, there's a lot of stuff to watch now. If, how's the strike going to go? Well, they got to make a deal, don't they? You'd think so. You'd think so. When you see the studio heads are making two, three million dollars a year, you'd think maybe there's a few bucks in there they could spread around. But it's one of those things where it's like, do they, you know, we have to have confidence in the uh, the need for actual humans. I mean, if they can master this technology to where they can just uh, own the rights of a person and then just create uh, some sort of uh, uh, AI version of that person and have them act for, for eternity, it seems... I don't know. I, this whole AI thing has me befuddled. I don't understand it. I it's don't creeping know me it, out. I don't know how it works, and I don't know why. Well, they can take a, a few images of you doing some stuff, and yeah. then they can make a fake you and kind of move you through the world of uh, fiction. It's like network television. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's just a slight difference. I mean, it was, just, that yeah. was, that's the way it used to be in network television. They'd, yeah. they'd hire you, they'd own everything, and then tell you what to do. Right, except that you wouldn't have to be there. And except when you came through with a breakthrough like uh, Laugh-In, and then mm-hmm. you told them. Well, I was curious about the book. You know, I've been okay. going. I've been going through the book. What do you think? I like it. You know, it's like it's telling stories. That's it. I mean, you know, what it's it's great. I mean, that's what people want. They want to hear the stories. Well, now we we talked about a lot of stuff the last time you were here. Okay. And uh, but you know, I've become sort of I I, I need to reengage with there are a couple of things right from the beginning. Okay. The uh, the sort of uh, the seeds of producing. You know, rooted in in carny culture. Yes. Yeah. Like I, I had no idea Ed McMahon was a, a carnival barker. Oh yeah. Oh, that's what he did. Really? Sure. Like on the road? Oh yeah. He would do it once in a while for me. You know. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, step right up. You know, your body will naturally follow. You know. <laughs> yeah. But that's but that was a uh, I guess that was pre television uh, pitch work. Sure. That's what yeah. it was. It was very good. But I mean, I. Love to have him do that carny talk all the yeah. time, you know. Well, what what was your experience in the carnivals? You did? Did you work at one? Well, kind of. Uh, it's very strange. We used to get carnivals had boxers and wrestlers, and you could follow the carnival around. You get twenty five dollars to go three rounds with the wrestler, or three minutes with the boxer. And someone from the audience. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you could go in. They would pay you twenty five dollars. Yeah. And my brother and I used to follow the carnivals around because yeah. it was easy money and. You know, until they found out about how they got on to us. And yeah. They brought in a couple of ringers that made it much more difficult. Oh, you know? because you could beat them? Yeah, yeah, but we were fast and moved around. But then they brought in some ringers, and it was tough. <laughs> so they ruined your racket? Oh, I learned more in three minutes than I'd learned in three years, you know? What was the carnivals like when they were touring at that time? They had the freak show, they had the, the they rides? They had the freak on the, the, per, the perimeter, perimeter of yeah. the carnival. They had the yeah. freak show, and then they had the side shows. They called them side shows. But in the mainstream, you had the, uh, the main games. features, the games, whatever. But then on the periphery, they had the sideshows. They had the, the uh, you know, the, yeah. the hairless woman and all sure. of that. So, you know. And the other thing we talked about, but I didn't get into, because I, you know, I spend, you know, about three or four days a week at Ciro's. Really? Yeah. I, mean, I work at the comedy store, you know, almost every night. I, I grew up. Because at the time, you were working at Ciro's. Yeah. Well, that's a long time ago. But that was but that was after the original Ciro's, correct? No, the original Ciro's was where I worked, and it was uh, and I was a greeter. Yeah. And, uh, 
uh, it got out that I'd been a bouncer. Yeah, but you're, and, you're, you don't like that word. No, so I released the story that I had been an executive in charge of emergency departures. <laughs> and Jolene says, it still sounds like a bouncer. <laughs> and But I got over all of that and I went to work in Vegas. But the, but at Ciro's at that time, because like, I'm kind of a, a, I get mildly obsessed with it here and there because I'm in that structure every night. And it's not, the structure itself is not that different than it was. A little bit. It is? Yeah. But, like, but there was still two rooms, right? Well, no. The, we added on the back room as a as a uh, convention room, as a party room, what? and we had that wall that would slide open so you could put the big show in the main room okay. and have a private party in that back room, and then open that wall up, and the private party could see the main attraction. So, what's the original room now was the convention room. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what yeah. was upstairs there? That was the Cirouette room. That was for private parties and things, and then uh, so it was just a small. That's the belly party. room. Party room, yeah. Yeah, and then you had the offices. In the office, my office was upstairs. Right, but Ciro's, Ciro's was a may. Ciro's was probably one of the classiest nightclubs around. You know, and they had food, yeah. right? Yeah, full you operating had, kitchen. That's right. And in New York, you had the Copacabana and the Latin Quarter. Sure. And in Los Angeles, you had Ciro's, and then down the street, you had Macambo. And well, then eventually, they opened up the Crescendo. Now, what was the mob uh, involvement? <laughs> The mob. It's such an ugly word, isn't it? Well, the, the, the fellas. The, My grandmother used to call them the boys. What was the, the boys? The boys is nicer than the mob. <laughs> the boys involved. Boys. Well, it was. It was not as as uh, strong as it was when Vegas really opened up. Because yeah. in Vegas, you had the, the Frontier Hotel and the Desert yeah. Inn, and uh, other a couple of other hotels. Yeah. Then they really moved in on Vegas. But at that time, at the, the time of Ciro's, um, you had you had people that would you you would do favors for right you know and, but who uh, was the guy in charge of la mickey cohen yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you uh, knew that guy yeah and what happened is they i don't know whether i don't know if it's in the book or not but uh, uh he had a haberdashery store yeah and that was uh, the front well what would happen is that every 10 days or yeah. two weeks they'd deliver a box and the yeah. box had tissue paper in it and i'd give them a thousand dollars and they'd go away and uh, so it was. So that in, was the that was your uh, your protection money. Yeah, and they never figured out where where he got his money. They used to have a, a van come by his home every Monday morning. Yeah. and pick up the trash, trying to find out where he got the money. Yeah, and they could never figure it out. I should have asked me. <laughs> well, you were probably just one of many, right? <laughs> I was one of money, one of money. Yeah, but, uh, but it was a different it was a different structure then, you know, and, and you knew those guys. And uh, uh, eventually, one guy came to see me, and he was one of the questionable-looking people. And he said, we want a meeting with you. I said, fine, what do you want? We want to do something for you. We're grateful to you for what you've done for us. We want to do something <laughs> yeah, for you. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm fine. Yeah. Hey, no, be serious. What do you want? Yeah. I don't want anything. I'm fine. Were you hey, afraid? Well, when it depends on who's asking you. When yeah. this guy's asking, he says, "Listen, who don't you like?" <laughs> <laughs> and that, you get a little shiver when somebody asks you that. You know that they could uh, do yeah. damage to whoever it was. But I, when I married Jolene, Jolene said she wasn't going to marry me because she said I'd probably be dead before I was thirty. You know, with the some of the people I was hanging with. Did you believe that? Well. Uh, kind of. I mean, I knew a lot of people, you know. <laughs> but you weren't, you, you were just, you were on the... Uh, uh, I was, I was, when they, they, would, they would come to me for a favor or to do something, or to make a call or to introduce yeah, somebody. Yeah, But I was never in that sure. inner circle. But there was, 
It was it was a different time then, you know. It was, and it sounds like it was all one guy. It wasn't. It was a whole society. It was a group of different people. But there was one guy at the top. Uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, it was the guy to call. All I knew is there was somebody to call if if I had to help somebody. Right. Uh, now, but, when I've met actual killers, who yeah, uh, you know, in my past. Uh, who were involved with the with the boys? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, they're scary guys. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you could feel that it wasn't glamorous. I mean, there was a, a moment there where you realized that you, you, the look in their eye meant business, right? But the guys, the guys that could hurt you were from out of town. Oh, really? They bring yeah. them in? Yeah. There was never a guy that local guy wouldn't. Oh, be. so you wouldn't ever know the guy that was never, coming. Never, never know. Never see him coming. You know. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. <laughs> it was a colorful time. It was. It it was not one guy. It was a whole society, you sure. know, and they all knew each other, and you knew all of them, and yeah. you just didn't want to have any trouble. That's all. So, when were you there when uh, when Sammy Davis came back yeah. after his accident oh, with yeah. his new eye? Sammy Sammy was coming into Los Angeles for a meeting with me, coming in from Vegas. Yeah, and he took a wrong turn, and he had that accident. Really? Yeah, and uh, so then uh, uh, everybody went up to see him, and. And uh, eventually, he got all healed except for the eye. Yeah. And uh, finally, uh, he could move and dance, whatever, and he was going to open in Ciro's again. Yeah. And it was a major event. Yeah. And uh, to get Sammy, and when when he when he came out on stage, he came out on stage with like a twenty foot knee slide, you know. Yeah. And when he came out on stage and started to dance, sitting on the corner of the stage in the audience, yeah, was, was Frank and, and Gregory Peck, and they were playing cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just blew him away. But. Uh, the other time when Sammy opened at Ciro's, uh, Janice Page was the biggest star in, on Broadway, and so we had her for the opening act. Yeah. And Sammy came out and looked at that audience, and it was all the stars in town waiting yeah. to see Janice Page. He took one look at that audience, and he did he did an hour and ten minutes. And he never got off stage, and uh, the audience went crazy. Yeah, and, uh, and that was on the main in the main room. That was in the main room, and then uh, so I called my boss Jake Kozlov at the Frontier Hotel. And I said, Sammy Davis last night exploded on a Sunset Trip. It was a major, So you major. were in Vegas already? I was working, I was booking the shows at the Frontier okay. and at Ciro's. Okay. So I said, uh, Sammy opened it. It was a major yeah. event. I want to book him into the Frontier. Jake says, well, you know, we don't work, we don't have a lot of colors at that point. He goes, yeah. And I said, you got to trust me. This was an explosion. I yeah. Said, he said, well, I right, book him for a weekend. I said, no, no, no. I booked him for four weeks. Yeah. And there was a long pause on the phone. You did what? Yeah. I said, Jake, trust me. If you don't, yeah. if we don't play him, he's going to go to the Macombo. Yeah. So uh, I said, so we booked him for four weeks, and then he exploded. Yeah. He absolutely just everybody had to see Sammy Davis, and we became very, very, very good friends for and, his whole life. Yeah, for the rest of it. Yeah, and uh, he was he was magic on stage. Nobody nobody today comes close to what Sammy Davis did then. I know even if you watch him, uh, you know, like if I watch him on, on film or, you know, it, it, you know, uh, old bits of his, there was, he could do anything. Yeah. And he did it. Yeah. He was he played, funny. He was cool. He, he sang, he danced, he did impressions. He, he played the piano, he played the drum, played everything in the, in the orchestra. And, uh, and that's did, a perfect act for Vegas. Yeah. And, uh, and Vegas just adored him. The only problem with Sammy is he would never get off. You know, once he, once he saw that audience at Ciro's, he just wasn't going to get off stage. And, like, he was into the mob for a lot of uh, bread and everything, right? <sighs> he owed a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when you owed money to some of those people, you did 
favors for those people. Yeah. And Sammy could never pay the money back that he owed, but he so he would work and he would work for them. That's and, a uh, it, that that whole element of 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 show business life at that time with when when the boys controlled a lot of stuff. It's 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 unbelievable to me that that you couldn't even like it must have been hanging over you the whole time. I don't even know how you functioned. You you, you just didn't make a problem. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you avoided making trouble. Yeah. It was not. It sounds like it was uh, a man, like a, a movie, right? Mm. It wasn't like that. It was yeah. quiet. You know, yeah. when somebody made a call, you answered the phone and you had a chat, and then it went away. <laughs> that, that, that was that. <laughs> you did what they said. And well, you, they, see, you get they, to live. They didn't say like that. You know, yeah. they, they they made suggestions. <laughs> you know, I yeah, mean, it yeah, was. Yeah. It was the, the movies have never really captured that era. Well, that's not as exciting as as uh, as threats yeah. in a movie. Yeah, no, right. No. The the, <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah, they had to have threats. They had to have you know guns and all of that stuff. It wasn't like that. It that's was, because uh, there was an understanding. Everyone knew. Everyone knew everybody. Yeah, and uh, you knew who to call. And you knew who not to call. It was just a different time then. Well, that's what I find fascinating about Hollywood in general. Uh, that it was a community. It was you know everyone did know everybody, you know, and uh, and it, you know all all the way through up to up to the uh, studio heads. Like it, it felt like a small town. It was a business. It was an industry town. Well, the, the stars all were under contract to the studios. Originally, the, right? Yeah, originally. And the studios arranged their dates and where they lived and where they had dinner and what yeah. they did. And uh, it was a much more controlled environment then. You know, and it, it, it was much neater. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you started your career as a as a booker, basically. Yeah, before you know, like, that, yeah. The doorman, yeah, yeah. The well, bouncer. The greeter. The, the greeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was booking acts. Yes. So you were able to get a sense or you had a natural sense of... of you know who was going to pop and who was the who yeah. was the star? And, and I would go, uh, I would go meet with them and and uh, everybody from Sammy Davis yeah. and uh, you know Peggy Lee and Lena Horn and uh, um, and I I knew them all and uh, uh, I would go schmooze them. One of my favorites was Mae West. Oh yeah, I went to went to Vegas and convinced Mae yeah. West to come in and play Ciro's. Oh really? Yeah. Would and she do a stand-up act and singing? It was kind of like that, but yeah. she was the most colorful. Woman, and she was old by then, right? Oh yeah, and well, yeah, she was old, but she was still she was still a rascal. She told me once, she said, "Uh, "Young man, I'm going to warn you: don't fall for me." Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and it was like uh, she was she was a rascal. Yeah, who owned Ciro's when you were there? Uh, Well, it was always open to question. Herman Hover was the owner of record, and he was the uh, the visible owner. There were other people that had interests, but that was all very quiet. But Herman Hover was the owner of record. Uh Uh-huh. Well, what what does that imply to you? Well, um, well, Herman was always short of money. Okay. So uh, he got the suggestions, too. Yeah, so he got the suggestions, (laughs) too. So uh, I would go. I would go pick up a check from somebody. No, no check. It wasn't check. I'd go pick up some cash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything was cash then. You it's know? funny because I I got out of you know Mitzi Shores passed away, but like uh, they were cleaning out her stuff, and I actually have a a, a matchbox from Ciro's that yes. she had. Yeah, you know that it just. I guess she picked it up. Well, Mitzi, yeah, yeah, and the Macambo was the other club. Where was that? that? That was right down the street from Ciro's, and then in between was the Crescendo, which was uh, oh on Sunset. That was the one Billy Eckstein owned the Crescendo, but could not be the owner, and because uh, he was black, 
And uh, well, that was an issue with Sammy's house too, right? Oh yeah. Well, that was yeah. yeah. You had to get him. It was his... a color line then, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was serious, serious color line. But Sammy Davis broke all those rules. More than was, any other black performer, I'd imagine. Well, Nat Cole was was a very classy, classy man, and, and yeah. Lena Horne was an elegant woman, you know. Yeah. But Sammy, Sammy just crossed all the barriers, and uh, and you were you were part of that. I was, yeah. <laughs> In terms of uh, facilitating it or championing him early I on. was, I was, uh, and then we did, when Sammy, Sammy made a comeback, and uh, we booked every, I tried to sell a show with Sammy, and I couldn't sell it, and uh, uh, it was just, to who? Uh, it was to, to All the the NBC or anybody, yeah. and then Sammy, um, uh, they called me, yeah. and I, I finally wound up selling a one-hour special with Sammy. And they called me and they said, Sammy won't be able to do the show. I said, why? He said, he's got throat cancer. And I said, yeah. And they said, but he won't be able to do it. Yeah. And I said, Sam, I went to Sam, now look, here's the problem. Yeah. I have sold a one-hour show with you. Yeah. And I'm going to do that show. Don't make me make an announcement. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, I'll be there. I said, now, Sam, I'm serious. See, see, you you learned how to make a suggestion from the- Don't fool with me, Sammy. I sold this show. (laughs) Yeah. But when they announced that he had throat cancer, everybody in the world wanted to be on the show, and they were. Everybody, Frank and Dean and Sammy, everybody wanted to do the show. Was that the 60th anniversary show? Yeah. Uh And then he came out, and uh, everybody. I mean, the tape of that show is just uh, heaven when you see it. Now, if you're so close to Sammy, I mean, there were these times where, you know, he seemed to be- Go on. <laughs> uh, well, they, he just seemed to be a searcher, right? So he becomes a Jew, right? Yeah. At some point, sure. And then there was a strange involvement with Anton Lavey in the in the in the Satanic Church. What yeah. was that about? He was even black for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Sammy tried everything. Yeah, you know, he was a member of everything. Yeah, and uh, uh, and nobody cared. See, Sammy crossed all the barriers. Sammy Clearly. crossed all the lines. You know, he uh, he would be there, and he was socially, professionally. Uh, acceptable, not acceptable, he was desirable. And uh, uh, and he did favors for a lot of people. Sammy was always broke. Yeah. But uh, he did favors for a lot of people. Somebody have a, an event or a fundraiser or something, Sammy would be there and perform. What's well, a rare thing, like, uh, and, and I, th- I don't know that people fully realize it, that, you know, what he had, the capital he had was his performance, right? Yeah. So he could always uh, sell out a room, yeah. always generate money. Well, when he was a child, they would have little Sammy go in out vaudeville, and perform. vaudeville, with his father, right? vaudeville. And then as he grew up, he got more and more. It became uh, the Will Master Trio. Then it was the Will Master Trio with Sammy Davis, then starring Sammy Davis, and then starring Sammy Davis and the Will Master. Did you know his father? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. his father kind of ran him, right? No, Will. Yeah, Will. His uncle. His uncle, uncle Will yeah, wasn't yeah. his real uncle. Yeah. But, uh, um, and but, Will was always shocked that uh, Sammy, I said, he said to me once, he said, Sammy, you can't, you're doing impressions of white people. Uh, said, yeah, <laughs> you can't do that, Sammy. And Will Maston was uh, kind of his. He was doing white face. You can't do that, Sammy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Sammy would go out and do impressions with everybody. Sammy crossed all barriers. Yeah. And, uh, but that performance was just unbelievable. We, have, we don't have anybody like that today. I don't know. I don't know who we have today. That You know, like I find myself lately, and I don't know why, you know, and thank you for the nice email about my special. I appreciate that. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. But I, I, I watch. I, I'm, I'm. I seem to be watching a lot of Don Rickles, and I can't stop it. Yeah. And I realized something about him, and, and just tell me if I'm wrong, because I never realized it before. You know, this was a guy that would cross all lines with the with with uh, put downs, right? That was his bit. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. But you know, the 
the idea was that the reason he could do it, he was an equal opportunity offender. He could make fun of everybody. But I realized something the other day that what? the other reason why people took it is that he was never doing well. Like his character is immediately flailing. Yeah. Like he's immediately like, I got blah, 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 like, and you know, five out of the ten jokes would fall flat. So there was a desperation at the core of the character that made him uh, vulnerable somehow. You mean he was like an open wound? Kinda. That's right. But the Don Rickles, yeah, played a place on uh, La Cienega. Uh, yeah. uh, Will uh, I forget the name of it? But uh-huh. uh, and uh, we took Frank Sinatra in to see him yeah. the first time. Yeah. And Rickles was nervous as hell, you know. And he started on Frank, and Frank loved him. <laughs> His relationship with Frank Sinatra is what broke all the barriers. For him. And, yeah. And so then and he show started, business. Because yeah. no one talked to Frank like that, I imagine. Nobody. No, you could not. Forget <laughs> it, you know. But, uh, uh, he talked to... Yeah, so he started doing things about Frank and got away with it. Yeah. Then all of it just kind of followed. Right. And where it was acceptable. Yeah. Rickles, Rickles... Uh, uh, it was it was lucky, yeah. and he was gifted in the fact that he could. He had a very agile mind. Yes, and he knew all the names. Yeah, and he made fun of them all. But the key to Rickles' success was his relationship with Frank. Yeah, and you had a relationship with Frank, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know who I talked to? Uh, I had back also. Uh, you, you, uh, were, um, I had uh, Dreesen come on and and just tell mob stories. Mob stories. I'm yeah. sorry. The the stories about the fellas. Yeah. Yeah. So about the boys. Yeah. yeah about yeah, the boys. Yeah, yeah. But how well, long? Dreesen was telling you all those stories. Yeah, because I talked. I, you, we were at the comedy store, and he's telling me these things. You know, there's a couple in particular about one about Johnny Carson and you know, another one. But I said well, you could tell these stories on my show because they're all dead. Then there's no one's gonna. Why come. think about that? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no one's gonna come get you. Yeah. Well, uh, he was careful. So there's some stories you Who, tell, Tom? yeah, and there's some of stories course. you tell, and some stories you don't tell. Sure, and then some stories you forget. Yeah, yeah, you have to. Yeah, you got to play by the rules. And and how far back do you go with Frank? Uh, I was very very young, and I had a job in the mail room at Sierra at uh, MCA, and before Sierra's. Uh, yeah, and I was written twenty five dollars a week, and uh, I had and so. I was the only guy there that was not in a black suit. Was I that a management company, or agency? MC, yeah, it was a, mostly yeah, bands. Yeah, and uh, before the record company. That's right. Yeah, and so I'm one day I'm delivering some mail to Larry Barnett's office, which is at the end of that. It still is there that building, and uh, right Universal. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, Sinatra came in the front door, and uh, the and everybody in the building followed him into Larry Barnett's office yeah. and I was just standing there. I was yeah. very, very young. And, uh, and so they, they gave me his contract and they, and he signed his contract and handed the contract to me. Yeah. Cause I was obviously, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, which was a bit intimidating yeah. and, uh, here. And so he handed me the, he said, is this okay? And I said, yeah, he never paid MCA any commission. He, yeah. They made money just by handling for him. Yeah. So he says, is this okay? And I said, yeah. And so he signs the contract <laughs> yeah. and gives it to me. And I want to tell you, boy, the humidity in my Speedos soared, right? Because, you know, <laughs> and they were all looking at me like they, I must know something. Yeah. I must be connected or yeah. something. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he turned around and he looked at me. I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, I have ties older than this guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first meeting with Frank, <laughs> yeah. which continued periodically up to and including uh, his having to do his eulogy, Barbara asked me, "Would I do his eulogy?" Oh yeah. And I said, "Barbara, 
please, that's the tough. She said, no, you do it. So I said, okay, as long as I don't have to follow Gregory Peck. Yeah. That's fine. But wait, uh, Gregory Peck was Sam, uh, yeah. Frank's best friend or what? Well, no, it was just, you know, you don't want to follow Gregory Peck with a, with a eulogy. How yeah. do you do that? But you're sure. funny. Did you get some laughs? Well, no. Oh, you didn't? No. Uh, uh, eventually I did. Yeah. I, I was doing a, a so I went to, <laughs> when uh, I went to talk, I went to introduce him and sure enough, here's Gregory Peck and then here's me. Yeah. But b- between Gregory Peck and me, there was the bishop. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, and yeah. I was now I really panicked, right? I couldn't follow Gregory Peck or God, right? And so I, I looked at the bishop and I said, "Thank you, Your Honor." Yeah. And everybody in the place just absolutely cracked up. And I explained that I had talked to a lot more judges than bishops. Uh, well, that broke the ice, and the whole event then became kind of fun. And uh, I kept thinking Frank was going to sit up in that box and say, "Come on, crazy, get off!" Right? Yeah. But uh, uh, what an event! What, what, he was an event. He was a force field of energy and talent, and and he 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 did more benefits. He was at more benefits than chicken. I mean, he was just. Every time there was a benefit, Frank would show up and do it. So you produced the uh, the the eighty years yes. thing, and yeah. he was, and, and how long before he died after that? Not not long. Yeah, he, he was in bad shape, you know. What he uh, have cancer? Yeah, uh. and uh, and also, you know, I mean, the, the man had ingested a lot of spirits. Yeah, <laughs> you sure. Know? And I'm surprised that that uh, bladder and whatever ever held up at all. But and, he and what was your relationship though with uh, with Dino? Dean, well, Dean, Dean worshipped Frank, yeah. and would do whatever Frank said, yeah. and uh, that relationship was Dean, Frank, Sammy, yeah, and uh, uh, and Jilly, and Jilly was the other member there. Yeah, Frank's guy. Yeah, Frank's guy. Yeah, and, uh, the other artists would show up at a benefit, a concert. Yeah, and there would be ten different artists, and each one would have an entourage of six, eight, ten, twelve people. Yeah, except Frank. Frank showed up with Jilly. Yeah. <laughs> That was his guy. That's all the protection Frank needed was Jilly. Yeah, was he a good guy? Jilly? Yeah. Adorable. Yeah. And I've only was, heard of him. I can't even picture him. I don't know what he looks like. He was, he was, uh, uh, he had round hands. Yeah. He had no knuckles left at all. Oh, really? Which made you some, <laughs> <laughs> imagine what it caused those hands to be round. Yeah. And uh, Jilly was, uh, he was Frank's best friend. Frank adored him. And he would have done anything for Jilly. And I'm... In talking about the the color lines, you, you know, there there was something we didn't really cover the last time that you talk about in the book a bit, and and it's that you, at what point did you feel like it was it was the right uh, cultural moment to try to create uh, a soul, the black laughing? There was just nothing. We couldn't put black people. Black people couldn't rent homes. They couldn't appear on television or whatever. And, but this and, is what nineteen sixty eight, and uh, and I decided I was going to do an all black. Variety show, and, uh, and this is before Norman Lear was even thinking like this. Yeah, well, it was it was on the bridge. Then Norman, I I also worked with with uh, Red Fox, which was another no no, you know, because uh, I did a movie with Red Fox called Norman. Is that you? But and I said I book Red Fox. I said you can't book Red Fox. He's obscene. I said I will book Red Fox and tape everything, and then just edit only what I can use. And he and he was very funny. And, the, the, the interesting thing about Red Fox is I got a lot of the old party records, you know, yeah. and I know the filthy Red Fox. But like when he does Sanford and Son, where he's clean and he locks into that character, it's it's one of the funniest characters ever on yes, TV. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. What yeah. happened with the Black Laughing? Well, the Black Laughing was was a major hit. What happened was. 
uh, it was all black, all black performance. The only thing I did, I had a white drummer just uh, for some <laughs> weird reason. And uh, the black laughing went on. Yeah. We ran it for a black audience, yeah. and it was a major hit. The black audience absolutely went crazy yeah. for this movie. And uh, NBC uh, would not buy it for a series. And I said, why? We have an option. They said, because they could never cancel it. They said there would be such an outrage if they bought it as a series and then canceled it. They couldn't stand that kind of pressure. So I took the pilot, the soul, and uh, the Wayan Brothers. And Don Rio was working with the Wayan Brothers. I took it to the Wayan Brothers. And they did uh, in, uh, um, Living Color. Yeah. And, and that was, what, the 80s? So. Yeah. And, uh, and it, was, it was huge because that, that style of humor, going back to minstrel, you yeah. know, was, was funny. And they not only said funny things, they said things in a funny way. And uh, uh, and the the fact that they were black, the fact that they were uh, oppressed, and all of those yeah. things, and they could talk about it, it was funny. Pro Bailey was funny, you know. Sure, uh, it, but like at the time when when you were when you did the movie, and then later when you tried to do Soul, the the, the show that we're talking about now, I mean, was your was your incentive uh, cultural or financial, really? You know, like, did, were you saying, like, you know, this, enough is enough, this needs to happen? No, Or no, were you no, like, no, no, this no, is a good no, market? No, no, it was just, it was financial, and it was the fact that it was a, a, a wealth there, a treasure trove of, of humor yeah. and people and performers. And, uh, and so I did it because I thought it would be successful, and it was enormously successful. But the network would not buy it as a series because they could never cancel it. Isn't so that interesting? So that's when the Wayan Brothers. Well, that, well times had changed. That that wasn't like yeah, the culture was different. I mean, NBC that that calculation is almost creepy, you, you know, because uh, you know they just didn't want to have any you know, responsibility in in what was happening around race at the time. By the time the Wayne brothers are around, the the the, the boundary's been way broken. That, that Don Rio was a guy that working for me, and the Wayne brothers was his family, so he took it to the Wayne yeah. brothers, and that became the Wayne brothers series. Series. The uh, um, the fact is, you see. The, the black culture has always been a part of our, yeah, of our of course. treasure trove of, of yeah. entertainment. And uh, um, as long as they stayed on their own side of the street, it was. But when they crossed over and, and became into the white area, then that's when white people got very nervous. Networks got nervous. Yeah. The white audience would, was not nervous. We booked, when we booked uh, uh, Red Fox um, and we did an all-black show, and I couldn't put it into a club, so I took it out to the other side of town yeah. and uh, did the show there. And uh, within a week, the whole audience was white. Really? Yeah. And it was, it was the black culture. The black culture has always been main backbone of much of our humor. Well, uh, when you bought Sammy's house, what was that? How did that happen? Well, well, you did a lot of research, didn't you? Uh, Sammy wanted to buy a house, and there was a house that used to belong to Judy Garland up behind Cyril's in the hills. And uh, they would obviously wouldn't sell to a black man, you know. Even if it was Sammy at the peak no, of his no, thing? No, 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 <laughs> no. Didn't matter. Uh, it was color barrier. You couldn't imagine. So we went up to see the house, and uh, uh, I got 200 uh, from, from Herman Hoover. Yeah. Uh, gave me $200,000. Yeah. And uh, um, I don't think it was 200000 It was less than that. Anyway, I went up and I bought the house. And then gave it to Sammy, and uh, gave it to Sammy. You know, Sammy bought it for me, but uh, then he couldn't turn me down because Ciro's and my connections with Vegas and yeah. people, they couldn't tell me no. 
So I bought the house and then turned it over to Sammy. Yeah. And then what happened was, since I was still managing Ciro's, yeah. which was right over the hill, uh, Sammy would have parties. And uh, he'd invite everybody in Ciro's to come to his party. And I yeah. said, Sam, you just emptied Ciro's to have your damn party. I, look, I helped <laughs> buy the house, and I got damn it, leave my, <laughs> my customers alone. Yeah. Let me keep my audience. Oh, Sam, Sammy was a party looking for a place to happen. Yeah? Oh, he was adorable. God, he <laughs> was fun. And the impressions and the singing and the dancing. Well, you mentioned Judy Garland, and you had a pretty deep relationship with her, too. Yeah, I wanted to do the Judy Garland show, and uh, I didn't know how to go about it, but uh, she was dangerous. And, she, this uh, was the early 60s. It the was early 60s. 63. And, yeah, and so uh, I had Dangerous done the, how? Uh, I had done the Dinah Shore Chevy show. Yeah, and uh, that on was television. A, yeah, on television, and it was a big hit, and it was good. And I wanted to do the Judy Garland show, but I didn't know what to do, so I... I didn't. I said I don't want to meet her because I don't know how to audition for Judy Garland. But why? Why do you say she was dangerous? Well, she was dangerous. She was, uh, you know, famous for uh, all kinds of giving the studios trouble and giving the network. Everybody was. Trouble. And this is her in her what the late thirties? Yeah. And so uh, I, I go for a meeting with Judy Garland. Yeah. And we sit down, and I said, Miss Garland, I said, uh, I don't care what you may have heard about me. There's no truth to the rumor that I'm difficult. Yeah, yeah. And she looked at me and says, you're difficult? I said, see, even you've heard it. Well, from that came a relationship where I could make her laugh. Yeah. The secret to Judy Garland, a lot with Frank, too. But the secret with Judy Garland was making her laugh. Yeah. And, uh, and I could make her laugh. But this is another person not unlike Sammy who could really turn on the juice and do anything. Oh, she hit that stage. Mm-hmm. And what happened was uh, uh, we did this show. We did five shows in six weeks. For what network? Yeah, for, uh, I think it was for... Uh, um, NBC? I think it was for NBC. Yeah. But anyway, nobody thought she'd show up for the second show, but she showed up. She did these shows, and it was a live show. It was an hour within an hour. Yeah. And they thought, you're going to have to tape her. She's going to be there all night. You know, 8 o'clock the show, 9 o'clock the show was over. And so the opening night of the show... I invited everybody, and everybody came, and the network went crazy. Who's said, everybody? Well, I mean, all the stars in town yeah. came to see Judy Garland. Sure. And the network said, what did you do? You invited Judy Garland. What, what, what if she doesn't show up? I said, it would not be a secret if she didn't show up, but trust me, she's going to be there. Yeah. She came out and saw that audience and just killed, just yeah. killed. <laughs> because she was, she was obsessed with, with same as Sammy. Yeah. Sammy would not leave that stage until he'd wrung everything out of that audience. Yeah. Judy was like that. She let sound of that applause, which Liza inherited, you know. Sure. But I had great fun. But but I did not do the show that the network wanted. They wanted another Judy Gar, uh, another Dinah Shore show. Which was what, more wholesome? Or more, what? More, well, it was more wholesome. And Dinah would sit and chat with people and she would talk into the camera. And so uh, they said, but Judy's not even talking to the audience. So I put that big steamer trunk, and I put all of her personal things in the steamer trunk, and she'd come out on stage alone, open that trunk up, and pull out different things that reminded her of her history. Uh -huh, yeah. And it was wonderful, because she would just she'd make it up on stage. Sure. Not what the network wanted. They wanted the Dinah Shore show. So I got fired. Really? And, yeah. And so they brought in Norman Jewison. I love Norman. He looked at the shows, and he says, that's perfect. That's exactly what she ought to be doing. But in the meantime, I'd done these five shows in six weeks, and they never aired them back to back. They, they aired them, waited about seven months to air them because they were indeed specials. Judy hit that stage like a battalion of Marines. Well, isn't that interesting? Seven months with a woman like that at that point in time, who the hell knows what would have happened you know, in, in the course of seven months to her personally? It didn't matter to them. Huh. And at that point, was she in trouble? No, Judy, Judy was trouble looking for a place to happen. Yeah. I mean, Judy occasionally 
uh, uh, they said she drank. She didn't drink that much, you know. She drank white, uh, blue nun leap from milk. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but she was, the studios had so abused her as a child, telling yeah. her what to do. She and Mickey Rooney, yeah. they did the first show was with she and Mickey Rooney. They talked about how the studios told them when to go to bed, when to get up. They were doing two or three movies at a time. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of leaned on each other, and they were both supposed to be trouble. And uh, uh, so they wanted what I had done with Dinah, which warm and wonderful. Hi, honey, how you all, you know, wonderful. Yeah. And that wasn't Judy. And I said, I can't do that. That's not Judy Garland. And Dinah went on to do daytime television forever. Yeah, yeah. I love Dinah. I had fun with Dinah. Yeah. What a classy uh, lady she was. Good singer? Oh, oh. She yeah. Was, and, uh, so Judy and Dinah and Sammy yeah. and Frank. I mean, I had good luck to be involved with some classic, classic people. Well, let's let's take a leap uh, from there to uh, you know, something we didn't really talk about last time, which was, you, you sort of, dis- what, did you discover Tiny Tim? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I was one of the first people to discover Tiny Tim. It was a time when, a time when... For I was laughing, always, right? It was for laughing. Yeah, I had a I, poster of him when I was a kid. I, I found him sort of fascinating. It was fascinating. I was, it seemed to me like rules were there specifically to be broken. And the idea of introducing Tiny Tim uh, in a major network show who was uh, obviously a, a strange person yeah. uh, would frighten everybody. So what I did, uh, I brought Tiny Tim out and Dan Rowan introduced him to Dick Martin. And Dick Martin looked at him like, you know, what kind of a freak is this? And Tiny Tim sang tiptoe through yeah, the tool, yeah. you know. And the audience went crazy and, and, and Dick was in shock and Dan Rowan loved putting Dick on. And uh, by the next day, everybody was doing tiny tip, tiptoe through the tulips, you know. And the network said, you told us this was a big star. I said, look at these reviews. Yeah. Of course he's a big <laughs> well, star. The only way I got him on the air was to tell NBC he was a big star in disguise. Well, th- what was interesting about him is that, y- you know, he was, y- he wasn't, you can put him in a category, really. And, and, like, you know, he was just an oddball guy. But he seemed to have such a reverence for that music from the old days that and, he was trying to capture almost what it sounded like on 78 records. Uh, capture the, the reverie and awe. Yeah. I mean, he, and for, Tiny Tim was a very, very bright person. Yeah. And he knew all the history and he knew all right. of the performers and he knew everything. He was just a little strange with that ukulele. Where'd you find him? Um, somebody sent him to see me and he walked in the office and I went, my God, this is weird because my, my sense of humor at that point was uh, a little bent. Yeah. And the idea of putting Tiny Tim next to Dick Martin was a very romantic fellow. He uh, was famous for his relationship with ladies. Yeah. And to put him on with Tiny Tim was yeah. just an outrage. Uh, and uh, when Tiny Tim came out and Dick looked at him, just in awe, right? And uh, it was such a big, big hit. Yeah. The next day they said, uh, you know, what is this? Yeah. And he went on to become, and then from there he went on The Tonight Show and then did all the other things. But Tim was Tim was super super bright, knowledgeable. What happened to him ultimately? Um, Did you? Stay? I think I think Tim died of natural causes. Yeah, you know, yeah, which <laughs> a lot of people didn't. At yeah, that but point, he did you know? that bit for his whole life. Well, it was it wasn't a bit. That was Tiny Tim. Yeah, and uh, um, and he, he but he people people just looked at him in awe. You know. Yeah. Because not not just because of the crazy little voice, but because of his knowledge of other things, you know, he was he was fascinating. Yeah, and so 
Would you say? Well, I mean, it's interesting with a with a guy like you that like it it doesn't it's not like laughing puts you on the map. You were a working guy. You were a big guy, big producer. Yeah. Helped invent the variety show format. Yeah. And uh, but laughing, you know, sort of made a difference culturally. Obviously, variety variety existed. What didn't exist was a show that was pure comedy. Yeah. That was what did not exist. Yeah. And uh, that's what that's what laughing was. Laughing was an attempt to do as many jokes as possible in as short a period of time as possible. Yeah. And it was born from my own minimal attention span, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, just, you, you figured out about a hundred different ways to tell as many jokes as possible. Yes, yes, and and somehow, and now at my, as I race towards senility, the, the idea of uh, intimidating the networks, the idea of presenting something that was a problem but with a 50 share yeah. uh, was appealing to me. <laughs> it was sure. fun. It was just a, oh yeah, but that you you were able to you know that was that was the way the the casino was set up then. Now like a fifty share is almost unheard of. Well, they get a five now. Yeah, you're the killing it. Fifty share was Isn't that crazy. So I said when when laughing presented a big problem because of the subject matter and because nobody knew anybody on it and because yeah. we didn't book guest stars as guest stars we booked cameos. Yeah, we'd stop in the hall. John Wade said, "I'm not gonna do that show. That's not gonna be on that show." And eventually he was on the show. And eventually, he got so much mail that we put him in a big blue bunny suit. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea, the idea of, of uh, breaking the rules yeah. always kind of fascinated me because the rules were boring. I mean, the Dinah Shore Chevy show was a delightful experience. Yeah. I had done M- Meredith Wilson's yeah. you know, 76 trombone. I did specials with Meredith Wilson. Yeah. All of those. I did oh tons of specials before Dinah, but Dinah was the classic example of a classy dignified, wonderfully funny, happy woman. Yeah. And so, but then the idea of doing something that broke all the rules did appeal to me. And it was the time to do that, 19-whatever it was. Well, what happened was, it wasn't the time. NBC was getting killed. They did did, uh, Lucille Ball and Gunsmoke were out on Monday night at 8 o'clock. Yeah. And NBC had nothing to put in that time period. And the basic greed overcame their timidity. And so they, we would have bought anything. Yeah. And I came in with a show that cost nothing, with people they'd never heard of, yeah. writers they'd never heard of. And uh, Paul Keyes was Richard Nixon's closest friend. So That's I said, your writer's guy? Yeah. So we put Latin. Paul Keyes in. Yeah. And so they felt safe because of his relationship with uh, Nixon. And uh, it was out of desperation. I mean, NBC didn't mean to buy it. And then by the third show, it was getting this huge rating. And uh, I mean, I'm difficult now, but with a 50 share, yeah. 50 share, 50 years ago, I was totally impossible. Who was the brass at NBC at that time? Uh, Herb Schlosser, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, or Fred Silverman. Yeah, but uh, and the networks, uh, they came. They they said you can't do this show, and I yeah. said, why don't you cancel it? <laughs> that's, well, what, what I said. They said, but it's eight o'clock Monday night, right? They said, but that's family hour. I said, yeah. So I said, why don't you move it? I said, I'm not going to move the show. We'll do it at 8 o'clock Monday night or cancel it. Yeah. Well, you can't imagine the meetings now. I mean, I'm a timid old guy now. Yeah. You've got to imagine me with a 50 share, 50 yeah. years. Well, forget about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you I had said, him uh, over a barrel. Yeah. So I said, uh, why don't you cancel it? Well, George, be serious. That's as serious as I'm going to get. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and we would go on doing it. And then when they'd look at those ratings, yeah. then they'd go into Herb Schlosser's office and say, he's doing it again. He yeah. just did a tribute to uh, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so Herb called me, and he said, had a meeting, and they're complaining. I said, why don't you can't? He said, shut up. Just do what you're doing. And <laughs> I had so to, I went back I had to make this call. And we did it. We yeah. did it. And uh, it was a it was a wonderful adventure. I mean, you know, can you imagine having Goldie Hawn come into the studio every week, yeah. and then Lily Tomlin and, and Lily? Oh God, it was a, it was an adventure. It's an interesting story in the book you tell about uh, uh about George Burns and Goldie Hawn. I, I thought it was very uh, charming <laughs> and very yeah. funny that you know that George, not, he he mentored you a little bit. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He really uh, knew his shit, huh? Yeah, I, one of my first shows with Dinah Shore. You got to understand, I was the new kid, and Dinah liked me because I gave her things to say that were funny. Yeah. Uh, but doing the Dinah Shaw show was uh, a real leap for a newcomer. Right? Yeah. And uh, so we we did Dinah, and then I was acceptable. Yeah. But how did you <laughs> and meet George, George Burns? George Burns was on the Dinah Shaw show. Okay. And he said to me, uh, he stood beside me, and he said, "Why don't you suggest that they do it?" Uh, why don't you do it? And, and they thought I was a genius. I was not a genius. <laughs> George Burns was telling me what to say. And uh, so that made my reputation with Dinah as a very wonderfully creative guy coming up with all of these answers. It was all George Burns. So when I did the, the, the Judy Garland, sorry, yeah. when I did the uh, Goldie Hawn special, yeah. wanted Goldie to be with George because Goldie was as close to you know, Gracie. Gracie. And, uh, and that's so funny because like, you know, in the, in the book you talk about how like, you know, George did his, the bit that he'd been doing his whole life. Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and Goldie was not necessarily totally comfortable uh, immediately. Oh, Goldie, Goldie, Goldie was one of the brightest people I ever knew or worked with. Yeah. Her, but she was easily distracted. Okay. And when she did laughing, we would stand next to her and, and Ruth Buzzy would make rude noises. Yeah. And anytime you could get her attention, Goldie yeah. would laugh. Well, yeah. she's now with George Burns. Yeah. And uh, so we do the rehearsal, right? Yeah. And I said, why don't we just tape the rehearsal? So we taped them doing a routine that George had done for years with, with, uh, with Gracie. Gracie. Yeah. And it was soft shoe and whatever. Yeah. And it was... Pretty screwed up, but we did it. Yeah. And we went, I said, okay. We did five more takes. Yeah. And uh, when we got all through, Goldie says, you're going to use the rehearsal, aren't you? Said, oh, yeah, you betcha. <laughs> because when Goldie, when, Goldie, when Goldie laughs, the whole world laughs. You know, yeah, this yeah, woman yeah. is so charming and so warm and so bright. By yeah. You know, for a woman that got accused of being ditzy, she was not dumb. She was easily distracted. Yeah. And I made my living. I bought a house in Beverly Hills distracting Goldie Hunt. Yeah. And do you, are you in, and are you're still close with her? Oh, yeah. She was just on the other night. She did an interview. Very serious interview, and she's she's one of the brightest people. Goldie Hawn and Lily Tomlin, you know, can you imagine having the two of them along with Ruth Buzzy and Joanne Worley and Artie Johnson? That collection of people all were available because there was no work for young uh, character people. Yeah, and I rounded up all <laughs> these people and put them into one show because they cost nothing, and the network had nothing else to put on opposite uh, Gunsmoke and Lucy. Wow! And by the time it by the time we did. A few of those two a.m. tapings, you know, where we would make up stuff, and it was improv to the ultimate, right? Yeah, yeah. We would make in the hall. We'd make up stuff, and they'd come in and just do it on stage. We'd come on with cameos. I mean, was it Gregory Peck or Claire, yeah, yeah? And they, and they were what down the street, so they just come well, yeah, by they were they were they were down the street taping the Johnny Carson show. Sure, and uh, you go grab them. Come I'd on go down. grab them, and then I get like, uh, and then it always developed into a bit of a problem, you know, because. Uh, uh, um, one night, one night, Dick didn't get to the studio, 
And so I went across the hall, and I said to Johnny Carson, would you come across the hall and read Dick's cards? Yeah. So Johnny Carson came over and did perform as Dick Marlowe. Yeah. Mar- <laughs> yeah. And everybody thought it was hysterical. It was yeah. b- born out of a problem. It was born. Yeah. My reaction to panic is partially what uh, made me a, a property owner. Well, there's good uh, good comedy in it. Well, there, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A mistake. Yeah, yeah, because people will have to be on their toes. You look at the Rockettes in New York. Yeah. One of those dancers out of step, that's the one you look. Yeah, yeah. You pay attention. You pay attention to the cripple. And it's hilarious. Yeah. And, you know, so I had a good time on the situations and problems that other people panicked over. I mean, Did you know Lucy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lucy, I was doing Dinah Shore. Yeah. Lucy's son, little Desi, put together a... Uh, a rock and roll band. Yeah, I think it's in the book. Yeah, and how I convinced her to come to New York, and uh, because I watched the roast of her the other night. You know, yeah, you had nothing to do with the roast, did no, you? No. Uh-uh. What well, What were they? Were they just a a fun thing, a charity thing? How they... the roast started out as a, as the friars. They yeah, would have yeah, of course. Yeah, parties saluting somebody, mm-hmm. and then actually started out as a tribute, and then Rickles and them started coming in and turned it into a roast. Right. Uh, and then it, Dean just took the idea, or what? Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, uh, ideas then were, uh, you could go into a network and talk to one guy and sell him an idea. Yeah. Today, it takes a meeting of 10 people to decide where to meet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at that point, Laugh-In was bought by accident. They had nothing else to put on, as was uh, uh, many, of the, <laughs> many of the things I did were uh, panic buys. Yeah. They had nothing else. And well, Real People was another one. Well, Real People, yeah, let's talk about that. But I just like, I, I think it's interesting about Lucy is that, like, you, you know, people know Lucy, but I love Lucy and the Lucille Ball Show, but she'd been around forever. She was a studio player, and she was, like, one of the gals yes. that all the guys knew. I, I didn't know until the other night about her long relationship with Ginger Rogers and yes. how, you know, she dated Henry Fonda. I mean, it's like there's this whole history to these people that certainly nobody knows now. Yes, but she was outrageous, and she would, She loved to laugh, too. She's funny. And so I wanted her to do this show with Steve Lawrence. She said, why am I going to go to New York and do a show with Steve? Why would I do that? Yeah. And I said, well, okay, but what do I do with this elephant? Yeah. <laughs> and she said, wait a minute. I said, what, what elephant? I said, well, I hired a pink elephant to ride down Schubert Alley with you and Steve Lawrence singing together at 11 o'clock on Saturday night. What am I going to do with this elephant? She says, I'll tell you what to do with the elephant. Take the elephant. She says, all right, when do you need me? The idea of riding a pink elephant down Schubert Alley appealed to Lucy. And you did it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, got arrested. And she wouldn't let me go to jail without the elephant. And so Lucy and I became very, very tight friends. That's and, uh, great. Now, real people, I just had uh, I just talked to, I talked to Gary Mule Deer yeah. the other day. And, you know, he used to run with Skip Stevenson. Yes. And so was that cast out of the comedy store? Yeah, it was, it was again, with real people. Uh, I'd seen Sarah Purcell. She had done the news in San Diego. Yeah. And she was doing the thing up uh, here in, with uh, Regis Philbin. And uh, so I never even talked to anybody other than Sarah Purcell. And then I wound up these uh, kind of quasi-news people. Bill Rafferty had been working sure. with me as a comic. And, and uh, I know other woman, just uh, Sarah. Was and, it Byron Allen, too? By, well, Byron Allen I saw on The Tonight Show. He was 17 years yeah. old. And he was doing an interview, and I, we didn't have any black, we didn't have any young. Yeah. So I hired Byron and Allen to Skip? come in. Huh? And, Skip? and Skip, I'd seen at the comedy store. So I said, you want to do a television show? He said, yeah. I mean, you cannot imagine today a young, hotshot, opinionated, problem, uh, 
producer, director, writer, yeah. getting by with what I got by with. Bringing Skip Stevenson, you couldn't he couldn't get a job on network television except with me. Skip Stevenson, Bill Rafferty, we hired Gary Owens as the announcer. Sure. And uh, he could, couldn't be in the studio because he was doing a KMPC thing. Yeah. And so he had to do his stuff first. And Skip, uh, Bill Rafferty, Byron Allen, uh, Fred Willard. Fred Willard was part of an improv group from San Francisco, with Martin right? Mull, yeah. And so all of those peers, you can just hear the names, that they were kind of on the periphery of show business. They were not sought after to do network television except by me. And he started, uh, he started those guys, like Fred, he started him, really. Yes, yes, yes. And, and the, it was, I'm trying to remember, the, it was basically a prank show, right? What? The real people? No, real people, real people. We went out on the street yeah. and, and we went out and we found unusual characters. That's it, yeah. And we uh, featured them. Yeah. And we found out that they were more interesting, interested than most of the guest stars. And it was a huge hit. How many seasons? Oh, five seasons. Yeah. And it went on just, it was a huge hit. And uh, uh, which I really couldn't believe that a show with no name, of course, part of it was they had another t- problem time period, and the other part of it was the show cost nothing. So, I mean, I came in with this idea with all of these people, and again, Herb Slosser said, well, you know, we have nothing else, so go do that. And before anybody knew it, uh, it was it snuck up. In the it, was like, it was like the beginning of reality television. It was of. the beginning. That's right. And then uh, uh, we were the writers for uh, Real People were documentary writers, really. Yeah. And uh, and they were not sought after for network television. Right. And uh, so we put all of those writers on there with uh, uh, this collection of unusual people that were interested in other people and Fred Willard was wonderful and, he's great at that and and so yeah uh, and again accident we put the show on the air but they had nothing else to do nothing else to put on and before they knew it it was a hit and I mean I'm arrogant now but you can imagine me with a 50 share forget about another it. 50 share oh, oh another and it was like a 50 share they couldn't believe that rating yeah with just unusual people so what at what point did you decide to uh, to create the uh, the American Comedy Awards? What drove that? Well, it drove that because of my love of comedy, sure. I mean, uh, uh, which I haven't exhibited during this interview. But uh, <laughs> um, it was um, just uh, all of these people uh, were hired as guest stars, you know, to do a monologue, and uh, that's why I got involved with this uh, thing in, in Jamestown. Uh, this comedy uh, collection. No, that's now. Now. Uh, it's a result of my love of comedy and my need to laugh and the fact that making people laugh in, uh, in unusual situations is part of how I got my jobs at the network. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd go in and they'd say, well, okay, we'll try it. He's crazy. But uh, um, it was, it's been, it's been a long and, and, and funny career. <laughs> For sure, and and yeah, and you like you created a space. Yes, that and is unique. We saw yours. something that wasn't. There was nothing there. Yeah. And Monday night at eight o'clock. Then we got Wednesday night at eight o'clock. And to come in with something one that would cost nothing. Yeah. And two that they couldn't go wrong with because who was going to criticize you for booking Sarah Purcell? She was a newswoman. Right? Yeah. She was a weather woman. And uh, if you walked into a problem with an answer when they had no other answers, sometimes you could put it on the air and uh, and uh, it would be a runaway and yeah. I, my my hits were all surprises yeah. as were some of my disasters cuz i probably got fired more often than oh yeah oh yeah oh, like yeah. For, like what's the most notable well, disaster well uh, uh, refusal really for uh, not refusal resistance to network notes mm. cuz they'd come in with notes and when we were doing 
laughing when we were doing Real People. They, they said, the network has some notes. <laughs> That's said, still a, a horrible thing to uh, hear. So I'd say, okay. And by the time they got through giving me their notes, yeah. we'd already done the show, and it was too late. Yeah. And uh, see, I have fun. I yeah. have fun. I'm having fun here now. Yeah. But, I mean, I had fun where other people would run away and, and say, this is a disaster. This is, you know. Yeah. And uh, if you could have fun, yeah. then the audience came along with you. This thing that we're doing in Jamestown is a whole museum, not museum, collection devoted to comedy performers. They've always had comics hired to host the Grammys and the Emmys yeah. and the Oscars. But they never they would, did a whole they, show. Of, never of did comedy. the whole show. So I said... What they wanted to do was to do a, an entire environment dedicated to the celebration of people who made us laugh. So this and is August 4th, the National Comedy Center. That's right, that's right. It's in, in Lucy's, Lucille Ball's hometown of yes, uh, Jamestown, yes, New York. Yes, that's and right. they're naming a theater in honor of you and your <laughs> wife, Jolene. That's right. And here again, Jolene Jolene was uh, the guest that was the uh, uh, co-star, if you will, or the whatever, leading lady on yeah. the Ernie Kovacs show. Yeah. And Ernie Kovacs, was a weird, weird guy, but funny as hell. He yeah. saw he was not funny as uh, you know as the person, but when he did characters and situations, they were so outrageous and bizarre and devices. And, he yeah, created and, it. and yeah. he met Jolene at a party, and and just fell in love with her. Oh. So he hired her to be his uh, his girl. And, so uh, so this this but in August they're doing a whole retrospective of your career and and there's a whole section in there of uh, Ernie too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a place up and running already. It is. It's right? up and running now, and it's like I think it's thirty acres or something. Oh, wow. to What I did is a uh, woman, wonderful, bright, bright, gorgeous lady, yeah. uh, Journey, at uh, Gunderson, and came to me and said, uh, "Could they have a couple of clips from Laughin?" And I said, "Sure." And she says, "This is great. Do you have anything else?" <laughs> And I said, lady, I have a warehouse full of elves. What do you mean? So I started sending them clips of the Comedy Wars, Comedy Honors, just for laughs, you know, yeah. And so I inundated her with these collections yeah. of tapes. And uh, so then they decided uh, uh, that they would do a whole area. And yeah, I gave a, few. a few. Gave them a few dollars, and they opened this theater called the George Slaughter and Jolene Brand Slaughter Theater. Yeah. And, uh, and it devoted entirely to comedians. Yeah. And, when you realize they were the you 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 remember the comics, but the people they want guest stars that could sing and dance or whatever. But the comic was always hired to host the show, to hold it together, to bring the people into the tent. And so we devoted this whole collection. It's great <laughs> to and and so I helped them get. They've got Don Rickles in there, and they've got uh, oh everybody, Rodney Rodney Danger. Everybody, everybody yeah. has they has given their collection of appearances as themselves to this uh, museum. It's not a museum, it's a collection. And uh, they're they're having a, 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 hello, yeah. a ribbon cutting on yeah. August thing. August and 4th. So August 4th. So we're going to go, Jolene and Maria and AJ yeah. and I. And uh, very, very lucky. I married a great woman, yeah. uh, Jolene, and had two kids, Maria. My daughter, Maria, produced and directed uh, uh, Dolly Parton yeah. Christmas show and won yeah. an Emmy, won another Emmy for Sammy Davis show. And other stuff, and she's doing now. Family business. Yeah, and uh, AJ uh, uh, was an Olympic uh, horseback rider and won all kinds of trophies. Wow. And is now, and is now uh, living in uh, Phoenix, Arizona with her husband. Great guy. Yeah. And they're, they're teaching kids, and they have a ranch down there where they, 
uh, teach kids to ride. So they've both been very successful, and I'm proud of both of them. Oh, great. And, of course, uh, I married well. Yeah, you did. It sounds great. It <laughs> oh, sounds yeah. great. And it was great catching up with you, George. Well, it's good to see you. Listen, I, what? I'm going to come by again in another year after I have done something else. Yeah. And, uh, we'll do it, or we'll just do the second half of the book. The, 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 well, the book, the book was an adventure. Yeah, I sat down, and just started telling stories, and yeah. then uh, I called a friend of mine, John Max, who's one yeah. of the top comedy writers. I said, "Look, John, I just dictated all of these stories or recollections. Can you make a book out of it?" So he took the stories and and deleted everything I couldn't say. Yeah, and then he deleted everything I shouldn't say. Yeah, and what's left is what's in the book still left. And uh, and Goldie Hawn wrote the afterword. Oh, I mean, no, I, you can you imagine into one life have Goldie Hawn, Lily Tomlin, and Joanne Worley, yeah. and Ruth Buzzy, and uh, uh, Bill, and Robin Williams, yeah, and sure. all of those. I've been very, very, very lucky. Great work. Nice to talk to you. Nice seeing you, man. And you're going to have me back in another two years. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll try to keep it shorter. And I'll, keep, I'll think of something funny to tell you the next time. Okay, buddy. All right. There you go. George Schlatter. The book is called Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy. It's out now. Uh, hang out for a second, folks. Hey, look, I'm sure you take a lot of vitamins. Maybe you take a daily multivitamin. Maybe you take ones to boost your immunity or ones to help with alertness. What about your cells? Are you giving your cells the full nutrition they need, especially as we age? I am, thanks to Solgar. Solgar is part of my daily routine, thanks to their cellular nutrition line. Give yourself a daily collection of nutrients designed to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more and use promo code MarkMarin, all one word, to get 20% off. Hey, listen, if you want some music for the pool or for your summer barbecue, we put together another live music mixtape for Full Marin listeners. This is a collection of songs that were recorded live in the garage, and they play like a complete album. Here's a little bit of me playing with Jeff Bridges when he came over to the old garage. John Goodwin. Beautiful. Thanks, buddy. You can get all three live music mixtapes and more than 75 other bonus episodes we've done over the past year on the Full Marin. Just go to the link in the episode description to subscribe or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF Plus. This is a a one-take guitar business right now. Usually it takes many, many takes. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but here you go.
Boomer lives, Monkey and LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere. Yeah. Yeah.